Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to what is going to be a special episode. It's part one, episode one, of a series that we're going to run here basically until we're done. I I have no idea how long this series is going to take. It could be a couple episodes. It it could be 15 episodes, Cody. I mean, we, we really have no idea what we're doing, but... The idea behind this is for the last few years, many people have asked me, Ben, are you going to do an update to your Backpicks Top 40? And if you're not familiar with the Backpicks Top 40, it uh, is a series I put out many years ago. I started it in 2017. I guess technically, I think at the end of 2016, I started working on the pilot article, which was about Wilt Chamberlain. And the idea behind that series uh, was to basically try to create a list of the best careers. You know, we talk about a GOAT list. This was really a BOAT list, but no one no one uses that acronym. So the idea was to try to evaluate all these players season by season and get an understanding of, you know, how much does longevity matter? How much does a high peak matter? How do these things stack up based on these player estimations? That's been sitting there for years waiting to be updated and that's what this series is going to be it is going to be an update so we can correct all of the wrongs of the original top 40 and really it's you know four or five years have gone by since i did this work i've been able to get access to a ton more games a ton of old footage for players from the 60s and 70s i've updated my process as an analyst so we're going to talk about all that stuff as we go through the series, Cody is here in the sidekick seat. The original uh, Cody sidekick seat appearance was for was just a grand sweeping top 75 episode we did to kick off the 75th anniversary season. He's back in that role today. And I'm, I'm sure you have like a million questions, uh, maybe even before we, we get started with going back through this list. I'm really excited about this. I remember so well in 2017 when I would await with bated breath the next release of one of these articles and to be here in the driver's not the, I'm not in the driver's seat to be here in the sidekick seat ready dri- to ask a bunch of questions. Yeah, you're driving. Yeah, I'm I'm somewhere in the car. Let's just say Ben that I'm very excited about this boat series as you have uh, dubbed it. I don't have questions yet because I I sort of want to see which way we're going to go in because there's so many different avenues with this conversation with this big sweeping series. So let's see where you go. I got questions already here, but I'm going to let you take it away uh, to start off here just to see where we go with it. Well, well, the boat thing is the big thing, which is it surprises a lot of people to know that I don't really have a goat uh, because that criteria is very fluid for me. It's one of the reasons why I I did this series a couple years ago saying, hey, I want to look at career value. I want to look at on-court career value. And then based on what I'm seeing and based on how I think about these players, I want to talk about it in a way that you as a fan, as an historical fan, as an uh, audience member, reader, listener, viewer, whatever, whatever medium we're talking about, you can take that information and bake it into your own criteria. So one thing we're going to do, hopefully, as we sort of make our way back through this updated list, is we're going to talk about things. Yes, we're going to focus still on encore impact and play and peak and all these things. But I think we're also maybe going to hit on things that 
kind of sit outside their criteria of this series, but are things that, frankly, people use. Like, people people don't always care about someone's 16th best season. Um, you know what I mean? People don't always care about this, this pure on-court impact in an average situation. That's the way I like to think about this. I like to say we shouldn't just punish you or reward you because you're in a great situation with your team context or you're in a poor situation with your team context. So we're, we're going to try to get into more of that stuff, but it always surprises people when I say I, I don't actually have a goat. It depends on the criteria. Are we talking about peaks? Are we talking about prime? Are we talking about uh, another one I hear a lot is I want to draft a player. I want to build around a player, right? And then what are the off-court characteristics that go into that? What's the evidence throughout history that suggests some players would be easier to build around or harder to build around? Things like that. So that's stuff we'll try to hit on throughout the series. So let's let's actually start with your actual corp valuation, the championships over replacement player valuation that you use. Because like you just said, this is your way of trying to boil down the way that you view, view a player on an average team. So I think my first thought going forward with this on this per game impact on an average team, are you thinking of how this player would be in a playoff setting on this average team or in a regular season setting? Because I feel like with a few players that we talk about, there is a dramatic difference in how they perform in the regular season as opposed to the playoffs. So are you going to be focusing in on more what they bring to the table uh, during the playoffs? Yeah, that's a great question. It is playoff-centric because the whole origin behind this is I, years ago, was trying to figure out, like, if you take the best player in the game, if you took Michael Jordan in the 90s, and you dropped him on a random team, what are the odds that that team's going to win the championship just because of his presence? And then you realize maybe it's not completely random, you know, like players get built around a little bit and things like that. But for the most part, if you drop a guy on all of the worst teams, even Michael Jordan, it doesn't matter who it is, you pick your LeBron James, Shaquille O'Neal, you pick your all-time peak you're not really going to ever win many championships when you put those guys on the really weak teams. But you start to pick up championship equity. You start to, in real life, see situations where players are winning championships once the team gets to be competitive. Maybe it's a 30-win team without them. Maybe it's a 40-win team without them. But it's a team sport. So you need a pretty decent team. And this is where the idea of scaling came about, where it's like, if you're a good floor raiser, that can matter. But what, what I really care about is, in a playoff setting, how much does your impact increase the likelihood of these fairly average teams or slightly above average teams or good teams, how much does it increase the likelihood of them winning championships? That's the idea. And then, since it's really impossible to like pinpoint value, always cracks me up, Cody, when people are like, you're, you're so biased and so wrong. You have this player I have ranked 8th. You have him ranked 10th. You must hate him. I'm like, that's almost the same. That's almost the exact same thing, my friend. Um, so the, the key that we're going to try to talk about, I mentioned it in the original series, and we're going to talk about it a ton, is I, I don't know how to ever pinpoint that value. I have ways to estimate it based on how good we think a player is. And then the key is the range. Like, what is the range or the ballpark that a player falls into? Is he somewhere between a low, end, low all-NBA player and a high all-NBA player? Um, some players have more uncertainty. Some players in the 60s have more uncertainty. Some players with more extreme or outlying playing styles have more uncertainty. We'll talk about that. But the key is not necessarily the individual 
individual number and where someone ranks. It's trying to kind of get the range of like, well, it looks like this is about a low-level MVP player, which means you're increasing your team's odds of winning a championship by, I don't know, off the top of my head, like 13 to 17% or something. Um, let's do one more thing and then we can get today. We're going to hit some honorable mentions and then we'll start cracking the list and things like that. The, the big ones to understand as we go through the update is that we will talk about new players that have added five years to their career since this started back in 2017 and the superstars of today's game that are still playing and who made the cut and who doesn't make the cut and who's coming down the pike. And then we'll also talk about players that I've been able to do deeper work on either through getting more footage or things like Greatest Peaks, where I've been able to go back through and reevaluate teams as sort of with a deeper dive. So that's going to be the focus. But there's one more big thing, um, hopefully also not in the weeds, but there's one more big thing I want to get to before we start stacking up names, and I'm sure you've got your, your list of current players you're going to ask about your Anthony Davises and your Nikola Jokic's. We're going to get to them in a second. But the, the other big thought I've had over the years is about winning bias. And winning bias is something I discuss extensively in Thinking Basketball, the book. It's something that's been integral to a lot of my work. And it's this idea that when a player's, when a player's team wins, when he's on the winning team, we tend to look at the positives that he does and we try to explain how and why they won, which subconsciously leads us to looking at more positives and overlooking more negatives. And then the inverse of that is losing bias. The losing team, we do the opposite. We say, boy, they must have lost for a reason. Maybe it's because LeBron shoots too much. No, 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 no. Maybe it's because LeBron passes to the weaker players when he should be shooting. Maybe that's the problem. And so all of my process over the years has been designed to try to help me avoid this trap, which is very hard to avoid. So I, I watch random games. I've watched them in different order. Now I just get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clips. And when you start analyzing skill components and things like that, you do it devoid of the scoreboard. You're not concerned about why a player or a team lost an actual game. And I think that's helpful. But the big thing for me, Cody, is I've realized over the years this is still a magnetic problem that is very hard for us to get away from. It's hard for me to get away from. And I think I'm still in certain areas probably too conservative about evaluations that map to the public sentiment, this huge groundswell from the public when a player loses versus when a player wins. And we can just stick with Giannis, who we'll talk about shortly, but he's the most recent example of a guy who builds a lot of momentum, He's the MVP of the league. The Bucks are great. And then you have a couple seasons of quote-unquote disappointment. And all anyone talks about it, I mean, it's the famous, you know, this guy's not a top 10 player anymore. Or I think the ringer had him at 7th or 8th or something. It's like, we have to look at the reasons why he, he can't do it and why he has all these failures. When a player like that wins, they, it flips. People do the opposite, unless you're Gilbert Arenas. Um, David Robinson, like, is, is a great example of that, where... When you evaluate David Robinson, I look at that and I go, boy, if he had had a, one different teammate, if he had had a point guard that wasn't an MVP level point guard, but was like an all NBA or all star level point guard who synergized with him, who could play pick and roll with him and allowed a second offensive weapon to kind of unload that burden. And then he could be the defensive superstar and the offensive 1A, 1B, number two, whatever it is. And that pushed the Spurs over the top, especially in a year like 1994, where you didn't have a juggernaut team with the Bulls gone, with Jordan gone from the Bulls. Maybe in 1995, 
look what happened to Akeem when they won two titles. What if Robinson comes into the league and gets those two titles? And then are we saying things about Akeem like he couldn't pass, he was unselfish, yada, yada, yada. So I tried to combat this, and there's probably a couple players and places I'll bring this up. But man, do I worry about that being a thing that is just like the ultimate bias, the ultimate anchoring bias. Like you're just stuck going... Well, I mean, David Robinson never led a team to a title, so how good can he really be? And I still think, looking back over history, especially the work I've done in the last few years, that's a trap that I'm always trying to get out of. I think that's a really tough endpoint to separate from. It's almost like arrows pointing in the same direction. Like, at a certain point, is winning pointing to goodness? And is goodness pointing to winning? Because the, the point with some of these players is the best players are going to impact their, their teams in positive ways that are going to lead to wins. And if put in uh, the best situations for them, it will lead to championships. It will lead to more wins and things like that. So it's almost like trying to avoid the wins themselves and looking at the impact of how the team performs and then using that as the jumping off point, if I'm understanding correctly, and not being blinded by the actual W that appears, but trying to pay attention to everything else that leads up to the W. Yeah, and I think what happens is when you actually see players with great skill sets like this, and then they also have like impact data. We'll talk about scoreboard data. It's a really important value of metrics. If you're not big in analytics, just understand that like when a player goes in the game and comes out of the game, we can just check the scoreboard and say when he checked in, his team outscored the other team by 10 points. When he checked out, they were outscored by 10 points. That's a really big deal. We can look at play-by-play data. We have, uh, going back to the late 90s on this, we can look at game-by-game data when a player misses time, but all of the rest of his teammates are healthy. I've, I've done studies and data on that going back uh, you know, 60-plus years at this point. And of course, we could look at even the crude measurement of a player changing teams in the offseason and this season-by-season data. So the scoreboard data to me is is the biggest deal and you'll look at players with these great impact metrics from the scoreboard great box score metrics they look great on film they have undeniably elite skill sets and then people are going yeah but you know chris paul's a loser right <laughs> that that's the what i'm talking about where if you're on a different team situation and you're on championship four or championship five then someone's going this is a top 10 player of all time he's a top five player of all time so that's the hard one and you can kind of prove to yourself that we do this because the odds that the best players ever just keep happening to play on championship teams seems astronomically minute to me we know the best players make teams better but not to the degree that in basketball is still a team sport So we know, like, just think about one or two different things happening with the 2003 Spurs. Maybe Manu Ginobili doesn't come over. Maybe there's an injury. Maybe Dirk Nowitzki doesn't get injured. Tim Duncan never goes to the finals. He never finishes the finals with whatever, 28 points, 20 rebounds, eight blocks, whatever he had in the final game, eight blocks, eight assists, ridiculous stat line. And then when you go to make your greatest peaks, all of a sudden people are like, you're including 2003 Tim Duncan? That's the trap that I I think is so hard to get away from. And we talked about this a little bit uh, at the end of the finals here, what was almost like Tatum, Jason Tatum might have felt better in in people's minds if he didn't actually go to the finals and have that performance because his conference finals performance was actually really good. So when you think about that, when you actually start like bringing someone down because they ended up winning and being in a different situation, that that gets a little bit weird. And to your point about 
the rest of the team being really valuable. I don't remember it off the top of my head. Don't you have an article on the in the Backpicks articles somewhere about how much better teammates are on teams that are successful? And that's actually one of the main drivers of championships. Yes, the better your teammates are, the more likely you are to win a championship. And that is actually a more important component than the individual star themselves. So this this always throws people because I'm talking about championship odds and players improving the odds of winning a championship but you can do that without winning a championship because even though in basketball one player uh, impacts the game so much more compared to like American football hockey maybe even soccer just that one guy can do so much it's still not enough to be more important than the other four teammates on the court or the other eight guys in the rotation or the other nine guys in the game you know the opponent Makes it makes a pretty big difference as well. You know, if you're playing a 15 win team versus a 65 win team, that makes a huge difference. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So, all right, I think that's enough of a preamble. Are you ready to talk the the new players that have potentially joined this list, the honorable mentions before we actually get to the meat of the top 40 are are, are you ready to, to to go there cody yeah i'm i'm genuinely excited to actually discuss some of these new players because i think there's probably like five or six players that i think have a genuine chance of making the list and i want to know if they make it and if they don't what your reasoning is for them not making it all right so you must be thinking of some of the players i mean it's been five years uh that these players have been able to add to their basketball resume here. Who who are you thinking of, Pratel? Who are you thinking that possibly could show up either in the top 40 itself or uh, just on the outside in honorable mentions? So I'm going to start with a guy that I think is like his trajectory must be on the way. I don't think he's quite there yet, but the way that he's peaking, he's got to at least be like flirting with the idea. So uh, what about Nikola Jokic? Where, where does he land right now for you? Ooh, he still has... Uh, a ways to go just in terms of continuing these high level seasons he's at. He probably still needs like two more of those, I think, to uh, really have a chance to make the top 40 at this point. I mean, we should we should just say the obvious, Cody, like the top 40 careers that that is incredible. That's an incredible bar to hit at this point. So I will say this about Jokic. If you look at, and he hasn't even had eight seasons in his prime yet, right? He's only he's only been in his prime. He's only been an all-star level player for a, a handful of years. But if you were to do something that I talked about at the end of the original series that we'll come back to as we go through this and say, look at his eight-year prime, even though he hasn't had eight years, he already, for me, has the 43rd most valuable eight-year prime, um, give or take some positions. I mean, I haven't worked on the ranges of those. I just tried to tried to run them as I did at the end of the series. So you are talking about a player, I think, if you didn't care as much about the longevity angle, that the kind of peak and heart of his prime that he's putting together, once he, once he slaps on a couple more of those seasons, 
He's just going to be on the short list of all-time greats. But for this exercise of the entire career value, the best career, not enough mileage for Jokic. Okay. So the next guy I want to bring up is somebody that, in my opinion, really hasn't peaked anywhere as nearly as high as Jokic has, but somebody that's been in the league longer, somebody that's had a more impactful, more impactful seasons just by nature of being on higher level teams, being in the league longer. So I want to know, Ben, the triple-double king, does Russell Westbrook make it? Ooh, Russell Westbrook is someone I think at some point I thought would be, you know, looking down years into the road, I thought, boy, he's going to amass enough value to get there. He doesn't get there for me either yet. Now, some of that is because despite winning an MVP, I don't view his peak as like a solid MVP peak. He's more like a a really good all-NBA guy, maybe pushing into that low-level MVP peak. And we've talked about this before just in terms of the huge difference between amassing production, like doing stuff on the court and having that stuff mean you're more valuable. The more stuff you do in basketball that's measured, especially in the raw box score with points, assists, and rebounds, does not necessarily mean you are adding the same amount of commensurate value with that production. And he's a he's a classic example of that. Um, very interesting career arc, which is something we'll talk about with a lot of the players when we go through this and kind of go into detail. It, these players weren't in the original series, so for the original series, guys will move through faster. But for someone like Westbrook, he has really fallen off in the last few years, despite not really being at an advanced age for this era. And I think that's something that's just kind of put like a limiter or a, or a, uh, a break on how much mileage he was covering going down the road. So Westbrook is also someone who did not really have a good chance of making this top 40. Okay, so I got a couple more guys. The next two guys are really close in my mind. I can't really differentiate between them, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick one off the top of my head. Somebody who's has multiple Defensive Player of the Year seasons. Somebody that Ooh. was flirting with MVP uh, a couple of seasons. Somebody that made the finals as the best player on a team. Uh, does Dwight Howard make it? Well, well, Dwight. Okay, Dwight has not really added much since last time. So. In in terms of his value in a in a project like this, in an exercise like this, 2018 to 2022 Dwight, despite sort of reinventing himself as a as a role player on a championship team in Los Angeles, almost almost adds no value. And he was kind of fringe top 50-ish last time I did this. He was close to honorable mentions. But the spirit of honorable mentions, Cody, just as a reminder is that these are guys that when we look at the ranges, when we say, what's a high-end valuation for this player, would put them in the top 40. So basically, everyone I kind of ended the series on originally, even if you just made the honorable mention, you were someone I was flirting with putting in the top 40, and Dwight was just on that outside line. And with a few new players coming down, he's still he's kind of still in the same position. He does not have enough juice to get there from the last five years. And you, you brought this up with Westbrook, and I think a, a prevailing theme that's going to go on during the series is this idea of between, like, production and championship equity. So, like, even though Dwight has multiple of these seasons and has been in the, the league a lot longer than somebody like Jokic, not every one of those seasons is actually, like, contributing towards championship level play so um i I just want to i just want to mark that because i feel like that's going to be something that comes up a bit well let's put let's stop there and just remind everyone we should have said this earlier that the difference between like a role player level 
season and an all-star level season. I mean, a, a, an all-star level season compared to like a solid role player might be three times more valuable. You might need three solid role player seasons. And I mean, I mean, good role player, like a guy who could start on a really good team. If you're a sub all-star, you're close to an all-star level season. You might need two or three sub all-star seasons to equip to be the equivalent value of one really strong all NBA season. And then even your all NBA seasons, if you have say like an average all NBA season, that might it might take two of those seasons to compete with like a solid or strong MVP season. So when you get all the way down to what we just talked about with Dwight, where you're not even a solid role player, you're just coming off the bench, those seasons barely move the needle. When you're like a 15-minute-per-game guy, you might make one good play during the playoffs. You might have one key game. It's a very small uh, number that actually adds to your career value in an exercise like this. So we're really looking at like all-star seasons adding up, all-NBA seasons adding up. And when we get to the top guys, like your peaks, your MVP-level seasons, really pushing you far down the road. Are you a baker, Ben? Do you ever bake for fun? I, I am not a big baker, no. Okay. Well, for, for those of people that do bake and whatever else, I think we're going to need something like this for this series, where you have like a back-of-the-hand, like, here's how things uh the equivalencies of things like this is how many quarts are in a gallon this is how many teaspoons are and however else i think we need that with like all-stars all nba mvp things like that i think that would be i think the people might be interested in that that sort of conversion rate from you like three three role player seasons equals a sub all-star that kind of thing yeah exactly and then how many role play seasons like equal like a mvp level season i think that would be really interesting to see it's a lot it's like six or seven of those seasons probably yeah Um, All right, I cut you off, though. You were going to ask about another player. I was going to ask about another player, somebody that I think is probably in the same range as Dwight Howard. Uh, Anthony Davis, does he make it? Ooh, Anthony Davis. uh, Let's go back to that eight-year prime I talked about, because Anthony Davis does have eight years in the league. He has more, but he has actually eight kind of like legitimate years in the league that we can look at. And running the numbers on the eight-year prime, Anthony Davis does make the top 40. He's 35th in that calculation for me. But, but, last two years, Anthony Davis has not contributed as much value as that sort of really good peak that he flashed 2020, 2019. To me, it started 2018. He adds a little passing in 2019, so I think that kind of rounds out his game as he gets older. But Anthony Davis, like 2015 to 2018 is really good years, 19 and 20, maybe MVP level years for me. And then kind of a drop off the last two seasons, whether it was self-inflicted with conditioning or whether it was just health. Either way, in an exercise like this, he hasn't moved very far in the last two years. And so that puts him right with Dwight. He's like, on the outside, knocking on the door. If he can turn his career back around, come back with another monster season, or have a really good level of play for the next three or four years, I think he'll definitely move into that top 40, but also still on the outside looking in. I don't want to play the what-if game too much, but does it seem like if he had kept up his level, his trajectory, his level of play that he did without the injury outcomes in some of these seasons, would he probably be in the top 40 then? I think he would probably, at this point in time, if he had two more good years to add to this, would be in this category that we're going to talk about in the next episode with these guys around the back of the top 40. I, I think he would. And we shouldn't shy away. Everyone, everyone loves the what-if game. 
I actually like the what if game and we'll get into it with a few players around like thinking about what happens if a shot goes in and flips the result of a series or an official makes a call that flips the result of a series that doesn't change how a player plays in the slightest. Those are the what ifs we'll do. So we, we don't completely shy away from what ifs here because everyone loves them. But in this case, a basic healthy what if we can mention with other players, um, you know, health is the thing here probably that stopped him from climbing into position. Okay. Let, let's get into the heavy hitters, Ben. Let's get into a couple of guys that I think probably have the best case of making them. The first guy, actually, I'm really interested because he has some of these same injury concerns where I think some's taken off the table. Uh, ben, how does Kawhi Leonard do? Does Kawhi Leonard make the list? Kawhi Leonard. Whew. Uh, Kawhi Leonard also does not make the oh, list. Wow. Kawhi Leonard is close. These guys are all like basically identical just in terms of me trying to estimate their career value based on their on-court impact. Um, we should also mention, since you're asking about modern players, that we're, I care for this exercise about impact relative to your era. And that also means longevity is different in each era. So if Kawhi had come along in the 60s, and put together the handful of seasons, 13, 14, 15, now we're starting to talk, 16 is really good, 17 gets injured in the playoffs. Uh, we've talked about this before. If you, if you deal with a more fluid handling of injuries, you know maybe his 17 season carries a little more value. But injured in 17, misses 18, misses another entire year in 2022, and in 2021 also injured in the playoffs and misses the playoffs. So the name of the game for Kawhi is really injuries. And putting together these high-value seasons that, let's say, start around 2015, 2016, extending to the present. And if he played 40 or 50 years ago, that value that he provided would be greater relative to his era because we don't expect guys to have 12 all-star seasons in 1968. We might expect them to have nine. Whereas today, uh, the way I like to think about it is like 37 is the new 31, right? Like Lebr LeBron James is 37, but he's really like that was like the equivalent of 31 in 1965. Like you're, you're kind of on the end of your career. You might have another good year or two. But today, you know, these players who the way they take care of their body, the health, everything, when you're 32 or 33 years old, we don't say you're washed up anymore for most guys. So that is part of the sort of longevity or within era adjustment. And in this case, it hurts Kawhi because he's a very, very modern player who basically just came into the league and is missing all these key prime seasons. Okay. So kind of long-winded question I have about Kawhi's peak. I I'm really interested in like where you actually peg him as uh, like where he would rank with his peak, because I think there's a really interesting thing that happens with Kawhi. When when people bring up Kawhi, the main thing people think about is the defense, right? And I think that probably peaked for him closer to 2013, 2014 than 2022 right now. And then as his uh, career progresses, he starts adding a lot more to his offense, right? He starts getting a lot more uh, load on offense. He's handling a lot more. His passing increases, his scoring increases. But I think some people might curve in their mind or they might add his 2014 defense to like his 2022 offense and be like, mm. well, look at this. This is this is literally one of the best players of all time because we have this this tremendous offensive player combined with maybe one of the best wing defensive players of all time. And that 
that just doesn't jive with my my analysis right. ben what what do you think about that do you, like where is his defense and offense peaking and do you think that they really add up to be an all-time level player yeah i, I mean I think if they happened at the same time, we would be talking about something like that. As it is, he's a pretty high peak player. Uh, just kind of off the top of my head, I feel like it's hard to name, let's say, 30 peaks in NBA history that are higher. He's got a pretty healthy MVP level peak. Now, there's some debate about when that happens. I've seen people think 2017, 2019 championship want run with the Raptors. Personally, I like his offensive growth in Los Angeles where you're adding a little bit better playmaking and passing. The shot is on point. The body, like his command of how to get through the mid-range and also still play off ball a little bit as he's done his whole career as a good shooter. Uh, I just think that entire package is a really good offensive peak unto itself. I mean, if we were just talking about offensive peaks... I certainly would have a hard time naming 30 offensive peaks higher than Kawhi. Then the defensive side, it doesn't pair with that. Like, his defense is still good. Um, He's still versatile. He's still a good on-ball defender. But he doesn't move as well. And his off-ball stuff has never been, like, his strength. But at least when he was younger, he had a little bit more activity. And therefore, you had more paint help or he's a little more devastating at the nail or something like that. So... His defensive peak, whenever it was, maybe 2014 off the top of my head, something like that, I think that's one of the better um, non-big wing defensive peaks because of what I just mentioned. Devastating hands, frame, switchability, uh, just the length to even guard smalls out on the outside. But he hasn't had, like when he came to Toronto in 2019, especially with the stuff with his leg recovering, he did not move like that. And... um you know, as the game has become more spaced out and as offenses have become more dynamic and you're more likely to encounter movement and cutting, we saw it in the bubble against Jokic, that's not his strength defensively, uh, handling all that movement. And, like, we saw it in the bubble, but we also saw it in the year before, in 2019, in the finals, not having the greatest defensive finals against Golden State, whereas in a series like against your your Bucks and Giannis, less movement in that system and more he can use his man defense, he can use his strength, he can guard up and switch on to Giannis. So all that is to say that I don't think those two things overlap. If they did overlap, it probably is more like an all-time peak, but they don't, and therefore you're left with ho-hum, just a really good, one of the like 30 best players the NBA has ever seen kind of thing. <laughs> I was trying to pinpoint exactly when when his defensive peak was and maybe when he was going down. And, you know, I was watching some of the 2016 Western Conference semifinals when he's matched up against the Thunder. And, you know, Spurs playing the Thunder. Kevin Durant's out there. Russell Westbrook's out there. Do you know who Kawhi Leonard is guarding? For most of these games, Ben? Maybe not one of those two would be my my hunch. The answer is Andre Roberson, Ben. Ah, of course, yeah. He's on Andre Roberson. And I know some people immediately hear this and like, oh, it's because Kawhi's such a devastating off-ball player that he's able to help off and he's doing this free safety thing that so many players end up doing. But when I was watching, he wasn't necessarily adding a ton with rim protection. He wasn't flying around the court and disrupting like you'd see like a like a tornado or hurricane or whatever else. And of course, there are times where like he switches on, not switches on to, but say one of them's on the bench and he ends up being the primary defender of Westbrook, being the primary defender of Durant. And I honestly thought when he was guarding Westbrook, he didn't have the foot speed. And I know Westbrook's just like an all-time physical 
player in terms of like being able to explode off the dribble, but he really struggled staying in front of him. And so I'm watching this and I'm like, at this point, there seems to definitely be a, a downturn in his defensive ability. So I, I'm assuming like 2014. And then, like you said, the offense is probably closer to, you know, the L.A. times, like 2020, 2019. So there's a there's a healthy like five year gap between these two yeah. peaks. Yeah, I think it was Jacob Goldstein who created the luck adjustment stuff with plus minus data to try to say, like, maybe Kawhi's defensive numbers went down in 2015 or 2016, whatever year motivated that. Because when he was on the court, teams were really lucky and hitting a ton of threes and it changes the numbers materially. And that some of that may very well be true. We should also say luck adjustment is much more than just your three-point shooting. But I will say from going back to your point, it's clear to me that starting in 2015, as Kawhi ramps up his offensive load more and has to do more on that end, and as he puts a little more weight on his frame and just becomes such a strong bull, uh, that he loses some of that defensive juice. And therefore, the distance between his defensive peak and offensive peak is pretty probably pretty severe in terms of the chronology of it. Okay. Is there anyone left that you want to ask about before we wrap? We got to talk about next episode. We have a new player entering the top 40 that is an old timer. It's just from going back and doing more projects where we got to get to that. We got to get to the legitimate, you know, sort of discussion of things happening. Are we ready to, to move out of here and just hit the honorable mentions and call the show? I had to save this player for last, Ben. I had to build up a little bit. We had to go through the appetizers. We had to go through all the courses. Ben, I'm I'm just dying to know. I'm dying to know if my guy's going to make the list. Ben, does Giannis make the list? Oh, Giannis Antetokounmpo from the Milwaukee Bucks. He is in the honorable mentions. Oh, he doesn't make it, Ben. He is in the honorable mentions. He does not quite make it. Now, what that means when you're in the middle of a run of seasons like he is, it means if we had just come back and done this five-year update next offseason and done it after year six, assuming he's healthy and has a remotely decent season by his standards, that means he's going to get there. And in fact, projecting forward again, we don't want to get stuck on one ifs, but it is nice to talk about these current players and, and sort of look at the arc and the shape of their career. Giannis has a couple more of these seasons, Cody. He's going to skyrocket right up this list. He's going to go next year. He would be in the 30s. He would be top 40. Uh, and the year after that, at this pace, um, he'd probably jump into the top 30. So you start accumulating seasons at this level and you shoot up the list. I will say that the more recent productions after he finally won a championship and got that monkey off his back and all that stuff, they have him very high. Like we talked about the USA Today top 75 when we did our uh, 75, 75th anniversary team ballot last year, he comes out 29th on that list. I believe the, yes, the ESPN list that they put out earlier this year for the 75th anniversary team had him 18th. So a lot of people have kind of moved Kawhi, I mean, excuse me, Giannis up into this range. And again, going back and checking my eight-year eight-year runs using this exact same method of evaluating each player's season, Giannis comes top 25 for me as well. So you already see a player that's really high peak stringing together multiple years, and it's close, but he's not quite there. He's knocking on the door. Okay. You ready? Showtime. 
On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so I'm, I'm trying to think of, of things that might, may have knocked him down. This, this feels like a what-if game that you actually don't necessarily like playing with him because you could be like, well, if he actually did have these skills, he'd be higher up. But I do feel like something that's, that's maybe holding him back a little bit in people's minds is the fact that it doesn't necessarily seem like his offensive skill set is super portable next to other players. And I think that's something that he may have added in the last couple of years. I think we, you know, we've talked about this before where the worst of the Milwaukee Bucks offense is when they're doing the like pseudo LeBron ball where it's like Giannis spread out five guys out there and we're going to let him create. But it seems like in these last couple of years, he's added this ability to be a devastating role man. And of course he's always had the, the defensive abilities to be portable in that respect. But do you think that that ability to, to allow himself to slot next to other high end talent is probably his most, uh, his most significant improvement over the last couple of years? I take offense. I take offense to this entire question mm. that he's why why is he being held back? I don't understand. This is a player who uh, I've had in the top, I think in the top 3 consistently for four straight years. I why why are we why is he being held back? I don't get it. It held back in terms of like I don't know. Maybe he could have had multiple all-time level seasons instead yeah, of a couple okay. MVP level seasons and an all-time level season or whatever yeah, it is. But that means like <sighs> That means like he shoots threes at 36% instead of 26%. And I mean, he he has added that little mid-range shot, which I think has been really nice. To your question, it's interesting that people don't think of him as an off-ball value guy, I think. And I think he has very big off-ball value as a pick-and-roll partner, roll man, lob threat. His lob radius is devastating. And, And then on the offensive glass, you need to put bodies on him and worry about him coming down the paint in switching situations he really is one of the most physical and physically dominating players in today's game even though that doesn't look like Will Chamberlain it doesn't look like Shaq you know he's felter and can play in transition but all these things create a certain amount of off-ball value and off-ball presence we've talked about how Milwaukee used him as a two-man game partner at the top of the key handoffs and you can get into the handoffs and screen and roll and all that stuff and I think that's that's when he's at his best blending that in with his transition game and getting him in space and attacking off the dribble and yeah I am offended by this question coming from you Cody that I'm holding him down um th- that's really the the answer is just longevity here it's it's if he added anything else then yes we would be talking about him as having one of the very short best peaks in NBA history. I'm going to fawn over him for a second, but it's going to lead to another question that I think is interesting here. Uh, So during the finals, during the Suns matchup, right? In my opinion, 
that uh, the block he has on DeAndre Ayton's alley oop. It's insane. That that block is absolutely insane. That block and the the you know the block he had for Greece recently, and just these plays where he covers an insane amount of ground and turns and twists and does stuff in the air are absolutely mind-boggling. So I'm thinking about that block on Aiton. I'm trying to think in my mind, what's like the most quote-unquote impossible plays where it's like, I can't name three players in NBA history that could have pulled this off. And I struggle, Ben. I struggle to come up with a play to me that feels more physically impossible than what Giannis pulled off in that block. Maybe, maybe like the LeBron block on, on Iguodala in the finals. That's also another just like absurdly athletic play where it's like, I can't list two, three players that could pull this off. But the Giannis one to me, it, it stands out as like the one and one of impossible looking defensive plays or any kind of NBA players that I've, I've ever seen. I, I think the cool thing about this question to me is that you can find a number of these plays, but it's a different player for each type of play. So Giannis has this one and maybe there's no one else in NBA history that could do that. But then LeBron has the chase down on Iguodala, and maybe no one else in NBA history could do that. And then Michael Jordan has the reverse layup against the Nets, where he triple clutches it 19 times in the air and spins his body and then Englishes it off the glass, and maybe no one can do that. And then there's some Julius Irving play with his hands and how big he is, and maybe no one can do that. And maybe John Morant has a play, and no one... like. Each style of athleticism, it calls back to the athleticism podcast episode that we just updated this offseason. Each style is capable of creating these plays that like you can't imagine anyone else physically coming up with, especially on defense when you don't have the ball. It's just something you're doing with your body. And I have a hard time with that Giannis one, um, just the way he spun and turned and the length of his arms and the size of his hands to get to that play. So yes, that's, that's your fawning is, are we, are we done fawning over Giannis or is there any more? You know, that man, I I think when I see like the NBA promoting the best plays ever, you always see like the MJ switching hands layup, but that layup around in the nets is legitimately maybe the best shot I've ever seen it. Like I'm I'm pretty sure he actually changes like the trajectory in the air. That's it's actually incredible. But the question I actually wanted to build up with Giannis on this is that when it comes to defense, there seems to be certain defensive players that are like what I call jackknife or like skeleton key defensive players. Where like, if you toss Giannis on defense, he's going to figure it out. It's like a defensive portability. Have you ever tried to like map out instead of like boiling it all together into one portability level, like separating it between offense and defense? Because to me, when you think of guys like, you know, Mark Eaton or, or who else? Maybe, maybe Patrick Ewing, Rudy Gobert, they seem to be less defensively portable than Giannis is who like you could defensively throw Giannis as like a three, four or five. And he would be just about as valuable as he is no matter what position he's playing. Well, I think defensive versatility has become more of a thing in pace and space because you could get away with twin towers, double bigs, things like that. You really didn't have to worry about your small forward guarding centers in 1995. Um, Wings took wings, things like that. The game didn't have as much switchability in the pick and roll with everyone stretched across the court. Today, you... It's harder to have double bigs that can play together on the court. Secondly, if you're a forward, you want that versatility to be able to not just play the three and all the, go all the way up to the five, but any defender can't really get put on an island because you can get attacked in a playoff series. So I think the, the 
sort of macroscopic answer here is that defensive versatility has become more important in the last 10 years. And that's something that it going forward, at least in my mind, I just automatically bake into uh, a defender's kind of assessment as a defensive player. Um, but yes, the, the spirit of your question about portability, how much does this travel? How well does it scale up to better teams matters now more than ever because of these things. You can't just be like David Robinson and Tim Duncan to go have a field day. doesn't work like that anymore. All right. Shall we wrap up? We're going to get to the juicy stuff. There is a player that you and I are dying to discuss next episode that we will get to a new entry on the list, but he's not a new player. He retired a while ago. Before we get out the door, we should remind you of the honorable mentions uh, from last time, George Gervin, the Iceman, Dave Cowens of the Boston Celtics MVP in the 1970s, Gary Payton, the Glove, Elvin Hayes, who just played forever. You know, I was looking at my evaluations of Elvin Hayes and even like his eight-year run is relatively low. It's like a top 75 eight-year run. But part of the thing that happens when you're at this level is you just string together these like all-star level seasons over and over and over again. It gets you enough to get in this conversation. Uh, We mentioned Giannis, uh, Ray Allen. Okay, so Ray Allen, he was 40th last time. He's been bumped down. So someone has bumped Ray Allen out of the list. And the last honorable mention also has been bumped out, and that is Kevin McHale. Kevin McHale used to be 38th. Really not much changing in terms of how I see these players. Haven't hit them in the projects that I've run in the last four or five years and and changed my mind or seen anything material. But better players come along, Cody. That's the name of the game. So two players have been bumped out. Uh, Kevin McHale. Who else did I say? was And Ray Allen. Ray Allen. Those are the two players that are bumped out. And in the next episode, we will start to talk about who usurped them, who displaced them on this list and took their spot. So those are two players are no longer on the list. You said that you already said that one of them was just a player that that it took some reevaluation and made it. So is there only one other player that made the list that was not on the list the first time? There is only one new player Mm. currently playing that has amassed enough mileage to enter the list. There are other current players that we will definitely stop and talk about as we make our way back through this list. But there's only one new player who wasn't here five years ago, who's here now, and we'll have to wait and see where he lands and who he is. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. That I'm excited. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We've got all kinds of historical stats that we'll reference throughout this updated series. We have a Discord community where at once a month we get together and ask even crazier questions than the ones Cody asked me about player players in NBA history and current players and current teams and anything you can think of related to basketball, including what would happen if I myself were nine feet tall uh, and played in the NBA. Um, that is it for this one. Uh, hope you hope you enjoyed this series as we go back through it. We are excited for it. And of course, wherever you're listening, hope you are having a great day. 